0: As uh, we now come to the scripture, let me ask you please to turn uh, to Mark, the gospel according to Mark, and chapter 4, I want in a moment to re- begin reading in verse 35. So Mark, uh, chapter 4, please, and verse 35. <clears throat> As you find that, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, um, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Uh, we trust it to guide us. Uh, your word is powerful. Uh, your word is alive and brings life to us. And so we pray that it would revive our souls. Uh, Father, through this word, I pray that you bring grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark uh, chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he, that is Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowds, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And then we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, this uh, passage has been on our list of encounters with Jesus. That's what we're considering these days. And it seems to me to be good providence because fear seems to be something that even social distancing can't keep from spreading. Fear seems rampant in the world in which we live. It's a well-known scene. It's, it's, it's a classic scene. Jesus stilling the storm. It's a classic scene in, 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 in paintings and even in uh, Sunday school coloring pages. So we've seen this depicted for us uh, a lot. The question for us is why does Mark have it? Why is it in Mark's gospel? In fact, why is, is this also in Matthew's account and Luke's uh, as well? And for Mark in particular, the purpose that he has for us is revealing who Jesus is. So that we would know that his coming is good news. In fact, it's the good news. It's, it's the gospel, the very coming of our Lord Jesus. And so we want to ask the same questions we've been asking uh, throughout this time. When ask the question, what does this reveal to us about Jesus? And, and therefore then here, what does it reveal to us about the disciples? And then by implication, what does it reveal to us about us than how we were to respond really uh to Jesus. But as we begin it's it's important for us to realize that this event, as amazing as it seems, really did really did happen. You know, we we often use the word uh incredible. We say that that was incredible or unbelievable. And there's a couple of different ways to take that. We can take that literally to say that it can't happen, like the cow jumping over the moon. We say, that's incredible, that's unbelievable. No, 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 I can't believe that. But you see, this really happened. And and there's some telltale signs that this is an eyewitness account. In in ancient writings of fiction, uh, details were usually left out. Now, our fiction writers... Use a great deal of detail to develop characters and scenes and so forth and so on. Not true in the days in which Mark wrote. And so, when there was great detail, even what we might refer to as unnecessary detail, uh, it gives the sense of an eyewitness, not Mark, but probably Peter, who was his companion. In fact, one commentator, William Lane, um, commenting on this passage, puts it like this. He says, this account bears the marks of personal reminiscence of one who had experienced the event. Notice the details that are here. It was that day. It was, it was, it was evening. Um, Jesus wanted to go across to the other side. There were these other boats with them. Unnecessary to write that in there, unless you just remembered it, that it was there, these other boats. They don't really figure into the story at all. Uh, we see that Jesus was in a particular place in the boat, in the stern, and, and he was on a cushion. I mean, we don't need to know that. But somebody who was there who saw it would remember, oh yeah, he was in the stern on a cushion. And so these unnecessary details. And then, then in this particular account, it's a bit strong what the disciples say to Jesus' teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Sounds just like Peter. That, that he would say something like that. And the others we have, oh, we're perishing. Don't you know? But but, but here, it's it's more of a rebuke of Jesus. Don't you care? Uh, so we see all of that. These details give us this sense that it really did happen. This is incredible. This is unbelievable. It's incredible and unbelievable, uh, like putting a man on the moon. Before that was done, and even now, we look back and we say, do we really do that? Wow. That's amazing. That's unbelievable. That's incredible. But it really happened. This is incredible, unbelievable. It really happened. You see, if this is just a legend, if this is just something thrown in a a story, uh, a, a book to to try to m- uh, impress us with Jesus to try kind to of give us a sense that He's really God when He really isn't, then then that really isn't very helpful or very hopeful. But no, no, no. This is really true. This really happened. So the question is, well, well what then really did happen? Well, well, Jesus was in a boat. He had been preparing this boat for a while, and, and, and he had gotten into it early that day. He'd gotten into it because he was teaching, and there was a great crowd around him, and when that happened, very often Jesus would go out a bit in a boat so that he could be seen better, and he could uh, project Uh, to them his voice and so they could hear him better and so he was out in this boat. by the end of the day it appears that he was exhausted tired obviously slept through a great storm so he was tired and and so he says to his disciples it's time for us to leave here let's go to the other side that's my that's my real plan for you uh, to get to the other side and so they proceeded to do that it seems like they did it quickly they took Jesus just as he was they just They just went. There were some other boats around as well who who went. Uh, And then there was a great storm at sea. Now, I don't know anything about weather patterns or anything like that. But but they tell us that the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. And it stands in the shadow of Mount Hermon, which is about 9,200 feet high. And they tell us that these kinds of storms can happen in that kind of Setting and, and so a great storm did. It was a huge storm, as Mark puts it, His Greek is, in fact, it's a huge storm. And in fact, when Matthew describes this, he describes it as a sea quake. Really, literally, he uses the same idea as an earthquake, except happening at sea. So you can only imagine what this might have felt like, sounded like, uh, been like uh, this ear shattering, mind numbing, uh, men soaking, shaking, freezing, frenzied, frightened, everything like that all of a sudden. And it must have been great because some of the men on this boat were experienced fishermen. And so here they were, uh, uh, frightened, thinking that they were hopeless thinking that they, in fact, were going to die. And so terrified, dreading what was going to happen, they woke up Jesus, who was asleep. And their question is fascinating. Don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus identified this as fear, but it was fear because they thought they were hopeless. They were helpless because Jesus didn't care. They really didn't believe that he would do anything about it or could do anything about it. He was asleep. Don't you care? We're perishing. That means we're terrified. And so here, here, here they were in this in this situation and in this particular uh, setting. Don't you care? And I I just wonder about that question. I want to say to the disciples, as we often say to them, even as we often say to ourselves, really? I mean, he called you. He taught you. He he took you uh, apart from even the crowds and explained everything that he was speaking to them in parables. He spoke to you in such a way that you would be able to understand. What makes you think he doesn't care or wouldn't care about you? But that was their sense right at that moment. So Jesus is awake now and he sees what's going on and he looks out and he, and he simply says, I, I wish I was there. I, I don't know how all this, I used to, as a kid, I don't know about you, most Sunday school kids do this, that uh, when it's raining and big storm outside, sometime in your life, you go outside and you pretend like you're Jesus. And you do a Jesus pose, however you think he must have stood at that particular time. And you, in whatever voice you can muster, say, peace, be still. And so you go back into your house. But Jesus stood there at that moment and, and said, peace. Be still. I can't even imagine the moment. Because right as he was even saying those words, it must have been so loud. The boat must have been rocking uncontrollably. The disciples must have been shaken in every single way. The look on their faces must have been... Well, scary even to look at. Even as they reflected their own fear. Desperate. And everything going around them, crashing and all of that. And then all of a sudden, everything is calm. The water's calm. The boat's calm. No more rain. No more wind. No more noise. Everything is peaceful, at that particular moment, in an instance, and you got to ask the question, who is this guy, who is this man who just did that? Nobody can do that. I mean, that's simply not good timing. That's miraculous. That's this Jesus having authority over all creation. So then we ask, what's this tell us about Jesus. Well, first we see this, that it confirms the incarnation. Because on the one hand, we see that he is a man. He gets tired. He worked hard all that day teaching. And now he's tired. And so he needs sleep. And he sleeps soundly. But also, he does only what God can really do. The wind and the sea obey him. Psalm 89 verses 8 and 9. Oh Lord God of hosts. Who is mighty as you are. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise. You still them. I mean, only, God, only God can do that kind of thing. We remember Moses at the Red Sea. Only God can do that kind of thing. No one else can do that. No one can look at the raging sea. And say Stop. Other than God, this morning in our uh, profession of faith, uh, we used uh, Colossians and and uh, chapter one. So, look back in your bulletin, or you could you could look it up and and find Colossians and, and chapter one, in verse fifteen. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You see, he has authority. He's the author of thus, He has authority over all creation, over all things. He made them. You see, when he said, peace be still, fascinatingly again, he rebuked the wind and the sea. He reprimanded them. (laughs) He scolded them. He says, what do you think you're doing? And he could do that because he had authority over them. Can you imagine? He had authority over the wind and sea. And he did that because he was the creator of the wind and the sea. And is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Chapter 2 in Colossians, verse 9. For in him, in Jesus... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's him, you see. And you've been filled in him who is the head and rule and authority of all. That's Jesus. How did the Apostle John put it? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Charles Wesley, in a great Christmas incarnational hymn, Veiled in Flesh. The Godhead see hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. That's it, isn't it? That's who he was. We could see it here. Uh, Jesus. Awakened from his needed sleep. Takes authority. That's his over creation and stills the storm. How else can we explain this other than incarnation? There's the man who's God. This is Jesus. So what's to say to us about the disciples? And then by implication, what's it say about us? Well, first they were afraid. Now, frankly, that seems really rational. I mean, even for the fishermen, this is a huge storm. They're hopeless. In the face of it. And so fear, you see, seems to be, to me, to be something normal. But for Jesus, he interprets it very differently. He says, why are you afraid? Still, still, after all that you've seen of me, after all that you've heard from me, still, you have no faith. There's a sense in which this kind of fear that they have is 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 not in tune at all with faith. Because, you see, this kind of fear says, I'm hopeless, Jesus, even though you're here. And I'm hopeless because you don't care. The storm is raging. It's going to kill us. We're going to die for nothing. And you don't care. You're asleep. You're not going to do anything about it at all. And so this fear doesn't at all drive me to faith. Now, there's some kinds of fear that will drive us to faith. I mentioned in the little note I sent to you about Jehoshaphat. Um, and the scripture tells us about him that his fear was really a fear that led to faith. It wasn't inconsistent with faith. His fear was one, the scripture says, that when Jehoshaphat realized there were enemies all around him, and that he looked at his own people and said, We're hopeless here, we have no hope in ourselves. But but then that turned him to God. It said that, that he was afraid, and he turned and sought the Lord and all Jerusalem, all His people, all Judah with him. Um, that fear was a fear then, that reminded him of who God is, and says, "I'm not hopeless, because God has made promises to me." And if you read Jehoshaphat's prayer, you find that it's based on <clears throat> God's covenant promises to his people and when jehoshaphat prays he reminds god of all that god has done for them he reminds god of his promises and he says in a sense we're banking on this we're banking on you being faithful to your promises you see that fear wasn't a hopeless fear that fear was a fear that took him to god in real faith but the disciples in this moment are so terrified, their terror, their dread really, is that they don't believe that Jesus cares. So it's not real faith, you see. It's not real faith. And so Jesus then questions all of that. One person I put it like this. He said, So there are situations that happen in life that come between us and the assurance that God cares for us. Right? Situations that come between us and the assurance that God cares for us. And and, and, and when those situations arise, uh they can often cause us to lose track of the presence of God in our lives, and his word to us. see, in one sense, and I don't blame the disciples for this at all because I forget it all the time. In one sense, they could have simply said, well, wait a minute, Jesus said we're going to the other side. There's a storm. He must have a plan. He must know how uh, we're going to get to that other side through this storm, you see. Because, you know, Jesus could have, at the end of the day, in the boat, looked at his disciples and said, let's stay here tonight because there's a storm brewing on the sea. And, and they might think, well, thanks for caring about us and thanks for caring about yourself. You don't want to get in the storm? We don't want to get in the storm. And, and and you know, you're pretty good at predicting the weather, Jesus. We're good at it, too. Sometimes we can predict when there's a storm at sea. And so so at the end of the day, they would have probably felt all right about things. But but But, but that's it. But in this case, they were utterly depleted of their own resources. But but rather than go to Jesus and go, well, I remember you said uh, we're going to go to the other side, and so we trust you, or or, or rather than thinking through all the things that he had done, what they had seen him do in terms of healing and forgiving sins and driving out demons and and all the rest, and and rather than listening and remembering the teachings concerning the kingdom of God, uh, that situation came between them and their assurance that he really cared for them. And thus, they had no faith. Now, it's sweet. Just keep this in your mind. That even in the midst of that, Jesus still stilled the storm. And even in the midst of that, he says, no, 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 no. I care for you because you're mine. And at the moment, you don't trust me so much, but he still did it because he had to show them something. Because really, Jesus had two purposes for getting in the boat and going on the Sea of Galilee that evening. Uh, One purpose was to get to the other side, which he would. The other purpose was to reveal himself to them in a way that should knock their socks off and which really did. But I have to say, you know, I, I'm like that as well. I get like that. There are situations that arise that come into my life that get between me and the assurance that God really cares for me. We saw it in ancient Israel in Isaiah chapter 40 that I read a little while ago. That was that was their complaint to God. Uh, you're not regarding our situation. You don't care for us. We think about that. It's easy right now in the context of the world in which we live and and all that's going on with this virus and everything else. To wonder, does he, does God really care? Where is God right, right now? And what the disciples had to learn was, and what we need to learn is, that God has a purpose. That, that he's the authority over all things, and he has a purpose that we might not be able to see at the moment. I mean when the storm began to arise uh, with these disciples, they had no clue that there could be any purpose for this storm other than them dying. That's the only thing they could see. Couldn't see anything else at all. But yet Jesus obviously had an entirely different purpose for all of them being in that situation. And it was a great purpose and a holy purpose. And a purpose that no doubt would sustain them for the rest of their lives. I, I suspect Obviously, this incident made it in the Bible. So they remembered it. We remember this scene. Why? Well, because it tells us that he really does care. And that his caring is effective. It really can help us in our times of need. Why? Because the situation is no surprise to him. Because he has authority over the wind and the rain. He could have kept the wind and the rain from starting in the first place. He could have kept this storm from brewing in the first place. And my suspicion is he's kept lots of storms from from brewing in the Sea of Galilee and in our lives. Uh, but when they do come, we needn't think that he doesn't care. Oh, it's a tendency for us because the situation has come between us and our assurance. But, but we Really mustn't lose track of His Word, because you remember, Jesus never promised, please forgive this terrible pun, smooth sailing. Right? He he never did. He never promised us that. He was very honest. Even in the wonderful teaching of the Sermon of the Mount, which we, we so love, He brings up persecution. And He says, you'll be blessed. Thus, you should rejoice and be glad. And, and, and we can't miss the fact that he's telling us right there that persecutions will come. In fact, he tells us on the night that he was betrayed that they, they, they hated me, they hate you. So, so we get that, that that can be part of our lives. And then he speaks about life when his disciples ask him about the signs of the times and, and when the end is going to come. And he mentions wars, and he mentions famines, And he mentions earthquakes and all kinds of other calamities that take place in the face of the earth. And he doesn't say to his disciples, no, uh, you're immune from those. They won't won't affect you. In fact, he says, in the world you'll have tribulation. You'll suffer. There'll be difficulties in life. We read through the lives of of the great saints throughout history. and, and, And we know our own lives. We're not immune from difficulties. Difficulties happen. But he says to us, as his people, don't be afraid. Trust me, because I know what I'm doing. I picked the right course that night to go across the Sea of Galilee. Maybe at the moment when the storm was arising, you thought I'd made a mistake. You thought it wasn't the right course at all, but it really was the right course. Right? And at the end of the day, after all this is said and done, when he stills the storm and they marvel at him, Then, of course, they say, yes, this was, this was, this was worth it to see that. Jesus, yeah, I I do care. I I had a purpose, a loving, caring, wise, holy purpose in this for you. Uh, Trust me. And we can see that. Turn to uh, Romans, please, quickly, and chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, please. See, no circumstance should get between us and this word. Romans 8, verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what's being revealed to us here in this word is that there's sufferings. But what he's telling us is this present suffering isn't, as he put it, worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Now it wouldn't have been nice when the storm began and even when it was at its zenith that that the disciples would have gone okay this isn't worth comparing to the glory that we're going to see now the next day they would have said that uh, but not at the moment but but faith you see links the present suffering with the future glory then uh, Chapter 8, verse 28 in Romans. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, his purpose. The disciples on that day were called according to his purpose. He said, this is my idea. The the, the storm didn't come up because they were being disobedient or they had made a bad judgment. But this was Jesus' idea. He says, I'm going to take you there. I'm going to take you there through the storm. And and so this is my purpose. I have a purpose for you. You're going to see something. You're going to see something in me that will wow you. You'll see something in me that will cause you to realize I care. And see, the all things there refers to all things. In fact, he talks about some of the all things in in, in the latter part of this chapter. Uh, He talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. All of those, all things. He works together for good. He speaks of death. Angels or rulers or things present or things to come. Anything in all creation. All things. He's at work. He says, trust me. In the midst of all of that, then second Corinthians and chapter four. Second Corinthians and chapter four and verse 16. It says, "So we don't lose heart though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory." That is beyond all comparison. Now, if, if if you would have said to the disciples when they were in the boat at, at, at the storm's height, "Oh, this is just a momentary affliction," they would say, "You're crazy. We're gonna die. Right? This isn't. This is. This is it, buddy." Uh, and 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 yet, this apostle who lived real life knew suffering. So says, oh, this is a momentary affliction. And it it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And the next day they would have said, oh, we saw the glory. That momentary affliction was worth it. And now Jesus says, all right, you're in the midst of the momentary affliction. Faith will link you, trust me, to the eternal glory. And that will keep you from the kind of fear that says, I'm hopeless. You don't care. Then Hebrews and chapter 12, please. Many of you are thinking, wait a minute, I wrote his sermon. I sent these passages to him as my go-to verses. (laughs) Thanks. I need all the help I can get. Hebrews chapter twelve verse seven. It is for discipline that you have to endure. See, we endure this for training, for teaching. Uh, the disciples should have could have thought about that. Um, in the midst of the storm, they, they could have stopped and said, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. We have to endure this moment because there's training here, there's teaching here, there's lessons here, there's something that God wants us to know." God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, uh, and uh, we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But but he, that is God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained, trained by it. You see, in the midst of the storm, it would have been helpful if the disciples would have thought, "This proves I'm a child of God. I'm in the midst of this storm, and and Jesus is here, and so this proves." That I'm a child of God. He's disciplined. He's training me. He's teaching me something. He doesn't teach us anybody. He's teaching me something because he's my, he's my father. And and this is, is, is for my good so that I may share in his holiness. And a day will come when it will yield the fruit of righteousness uh, to those who have been trained by it. My sense is that that storm that the disciples experienced that day did exactly that. It did enable them to share in holiness it did and it did teach them and and, and, and give them this fruit of righteousness as they 've been trained by it. We see the lives of these men, and it worked in them, and so we trust I pray for us as well i 'm running out of time so you can look up uh, the short passage in James chapter one, but let me look here in first Peter in chapter one as well, verse three blessed. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. who By God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he says, this is what he's done. But then verse six. In this you rejoice, what he's done, though now... For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, uh, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Uh, the disciples in the, in the boat, uh, someone could have said to them, you know what's necessary right now is this storm. I, I know you don't think it's necessary. I think if you had your choice, you would have stayed on either side and all of that and not experienced this now that you're experiencing it. But it really is necessary. And it's, it's going to prove very fruitful for you because it's going to cause your faith to be genuine. And don't you know that it did? Don't you know that they would think back on that experience and they would say, I should never think myself hopeless. I should never think that I'm hopeless because I think that God doesn't care. I should always know that he does care. And therefore I can always trust him. And therefore I can always uh, uh, be at peace. But notice, very quickly, back in Mark uh, chapter 4, that at the end of the day, after they were afraid because of the storm, now they're even more afraid. There's even greater fear. And why is that? Because now they realize that there's someone who's more powerful than the most powerful thing they knew. Uh, There's someone more powerful than this storm. and And it's Jesus. And so now they're afraid again. But but this fear is different than the previous fear. In fact, two different Greek words. One means dread, the first one. Hopeless dread, you see. And this one is, is a fear that shapes our lives, that moves us to worship. Paul Tripp, a pastor, psychologist, um, says that only fear can overcome fear you can only overcome one fear with a greater fear and by that he means this fear of jesus that leads us to worship that says who is this man and to lead us to say i can trust him because you see the difference between the power of the storm and the power of jesus Is that the power of the storm feels indifferent to us. It's just a storm blowing. But the power of Jesus isn't indifferent to us. The power of Jesus loves us. The power of Jesus is used, you see, by him to bring good to us. To fulfill all the promises of God for us. And so we fear him. Because we know his power and his grace and his wisdom And his love. And that fear then means we'll never be hopeless. That fear means uh, we always know that he cares and that he loves us. And we need to remember this in the days in which we live. And so you might say, how can I have this kind of faith? How can I have that kind of faith? Well, this being Lent at Grace should be a communion Sunday. So I want you, everybody, to picture the communion table. What do you see? What you should see, really, is that Jesus has given himself for us. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. That he's given himself for us. And what that should cause us to realize is that he loves us. You see, when we look at the cross, yes, we're to see the holiness of God as he pours out his wrath upon sin, but to realize that he pours out his wrath upon our sin, upon Jesus, and not upon us. See, that's the big storm. The the, the big storm isn't at sea or in the air as a virus. But the big storm is the judgment of God. And Jesus says, I've stilled that storm. I've brought peace in the midst of that storm through the blood of the cross. And so when we see the cross, what we're to see is he cares about me. He really does. Why should I ever be frightened in the sense that thinking I'm alone? Why should I ever be frightened in the sense that I don't think God cares for me, but because because here's this situation. No, no, no. We look at the cross and we see, no, no, he really does love us. He really does. Therefore, since he loves us, whatever it is that we're going through at the moment, this one who is God of all creation, who has authority over all things, I can trust that he has a good purpose because he loves me. I I don't know what the present circumstance will bring. It was interesting, last week, like Thursday we're all saying oh this isn't so bad give me a buzz in three weeks give me a buzz in a month and a half we don't know how close this will get to any of us for some of us it's perhaps already really close how do we keep from going to God and say, don't you care? We keep from that by faith. How do we have that faith? That faith in looking at the cross to realize that he really loves us. And to remember this, that the key point about faith isn't me, the expresser of faith, but the object of the faith. I came across this illustration again this week. It's an old one, but it goes like this. Let's say you're, you're tumbling down a cliff. And in your tumbling down a cliff, you see a branch and you grab it. The question is, how much faith do you have to have in that branch for it to hold you? Well, on the one hand, it's good to have faith because that'll mean you'll really hold tight. But on the other hand, you can have all the faith in the world that that branch is going to hold you but if it can't hold you you'll die but let's say you're tumbling down the cliff and you see a branch you grab it you don't even think it's the only thing there you're not really conscious even is grab it how much faith does it have to you have to have in order for that branch to hold you well if that branch can hold you you'll be held You know, there are times in our lives when it's really hard to believe. Because the situation, the circumstance is so huge that's between me and assurance that he really cares. I get that. I know that. So what do we do? To remember it's not about me. It's not about my ability. It's not about me mustering up faith. It's about Jesus being faithful to hold me. And how do I know that he does that? How do I know that he will hold me? He will hold me because he promised to. He said, now, don't let this cause you to be blurry. See my word. Listen to it. I I, I told you there's going to be difficulties. But I also told you I go to prepare a place for you. I also told you I'd never leave you or forsake you. I I told you that I'd be with you. That I care for you. And I've proven it. I took care of the big storm. The ultimate storm. Trust me in this one. I'll be just as faithful. Just as faithful. So let me end with this. And we know that for those who love God. nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hmm. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, we give you thanks that our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of all creation, that his sovereign power cannot be thwarted, that he has authority over all. But even more, we are grateful that he loves all who call upon his name, all who trust in him, and thus we live in the assurance that you care for us when times are pleasant and even when they're not. We know that when difficulties come, you in your wisdom and love have a good and holy purpose for us. But Father, I confess with my brothers and sisters that these difficult times can cause us like the disciples on the boat to be afraid and to doubt your love. Enable us, I pray, to see clearly the cross that we may know with certainty the love of Christ. To know that, God, you demonstrate your own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is love Not that we loved you, but that you loved us and that gave your Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that God, looking upon him, we may be assured that we will remain steadfast in faith. Father, bless those among us. And these days sustain our health. We pray that this virus doesn't spread to us or from us. Protect us all, but particularly protect the bodies of those who are most vulnerable to illness. Protect the hearts and minds of those most vulnerable to fear. Protect those who are on the front lines of this fight, our health care workers, doctors and nurses, and all others who care for those who are ill. Be with our educators as they adjust to new ways to teach our, our students as they learn uh, uh, now how to uh, uh, be efficient outside of the classroom. Help us all as we adjust to this new normal for this time. Grant grace to families as many spend each day together. As school time is adjusted to be at home, as work is done at home, as many find themselves isolated from family and friends. Give wisdom and strength to those who govern government and medicine and education, business, church, family. Enable husbands and wives to love each other well. For children, God, help them to be as unscathed as they can be. Grant them freedom from anxiety and enable them to experience the joy of being a kid. Cause us, please, not to be anxious, but to trust in you. And Father, we continue to pray that you'd be gracious to enable a cure to be found. And Father, still, uh, much of our lives, though consumed with this virus, uh, still need to be lived out, normal life. We, We thank you for the birds in the morning that sing, the flowers that are starting to bud the trees. Sunshine. Your Covenant that says you care for us. And Father, even apart from the virus, there are relational difficulties that preceded this time and, and still may be going on. There's disabilities and anxieties and loneliness and grieving, all unrelated to the virus, but related closely to normal life. And so we pray, Father, be with us. Help us be faithful in these days. And please give us clear evidence of your presence among us. Give us good stories to share with one another as we see you at work. Please, we pray, draw many to yourself. And we're able to assemble again in this place. There'll be new ones among us who've been called through the witness of our church. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.